Hey friends, and welcome to the latest episode of That's Interesting, everybody's favorite podcast. Today I have a great friend and coworker named Isaac, and this is a little bit different than some of the other episodes that I've done. It's a lot longer, and the reason being is that he's not interviewed per se. He has a story that I want people to hear with a lot of lessons learned. And so I just prompt him and let him talk. And so he goes on for quite a while to tell this incredibly impactful story of some significant trials and how he's overcome that to still be positive, to still be successful, and how we can take the struggles and the trials of our life and turn them to our benefit. With that being said, enjoy. Hey Isaac, how's it going? Hey Tim, good. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for so much for uh, coming on and doing this with me. My pleasure. My pleasure. All right. So the way I always like to kick this off is give you a chance to briefly give a quick bio about yourself, a little bit about your family, who you are, where you're from. So the listeners basically have an idea of who is going to be talking. So I was uh, I was born in Dallas, Texas. Um, I was the first son of two Korean immigrants, South Korean immigrants that immigrated to this country back in the 80s. And they, uh, they were socio-political activists. Uh, so in a very uh, simplistic sense, they were like full-on revolutionaries, meaning, so at that time, in, in, in the, I, I, I specify this because it very much shaped the, uh, a big portion of my childhood. But um, back in the 80s, uh, some people don't really know this part of history, but um, South Korea was run by a, military, a series of military dictatorships ever since its birth in 1950, all the way up until the 1990s, where they had their first democratic leader. But during the 80s, they had a very brutal and repressive democratic uh, military dictatorship um, ruling the country. So part of my parents' kind of revolutionary, quote-unquote, activities involved this pro-democratic movement to kind of free the citizens of Korea, South Korea from that repressive rule, usually and partially because uh, North Korea is the highlight of the focus because they're, you know, we're, we're at political, like we're political enemies and we have all this beef. But back in, the, back in those days, South Korea was also, um, there was a very controversial uh, leadership at that time. So they, they moved, they immigrated to this country, um, we were, they were poor. They didn't, they didn't have a penny when they came here. So they worked a lot, a bunch of odd jobs. My dad was working on his grad degree and, um, that was the basis of my childhood. And the reason, because they were poor and because we moved a lot, uh, we, we usually situated in a lot of public housing units. So like section eight housing. So I kind of, and most of the section eight houses that we grew up in, or I grew up in was, um, in Montgomery County. So I grew up kind of like in the hood, but because it was Montgomery County, it wasn't like as bad as maybe a Detroit or a, a New Orleans hood or um, maybe even in the inner city in D.C. But it was still kind of like I, I went I can empathize with people that grew up in uh, Section 8 housing units and had to deal with a lot of the kind of that rougher culture. So that was like a bulk of my childhood from. I think as far back as I can remember, all the way till 17 the majority of my friends were predominantly lower income, single parent household, African-American children. And that they, so that, that cultural 
demographic uh, is a huge influence on in my life. It's one of the reasons why I like hip hop. Um, one of the reasons why I grew up battle dancing and stuff like that. Uh, but yeah, so that was my childhood. Uh, and, and, and we'll talk more about it. But in 18, when I was 18, I had a pretty horrific car accident. Uh, took the life of my baby sister, left me in a coma. And then this basically all of my 20s was dedicated to kind of healing, recovering, and piecing my kind of broken body and mind back together. And, uh, you know, I went, I went back to college at 27, uh, got my degree, decided on law school because for I had this idea that it was the safe thing. I felt that I went through some suffering in my life because of lack of prestige. So I felt that it would bring some prestige upon myself and my family. And I felt that that would be the panacea to my struggles. And like anything else in life, it doesn't, you know, it, does, it doesn't help. <laughs> Not that it doesn't help, but it didn't fix anything. So when I got to law school, I made the decision that I, from this point out, um, I will only make decisions in my life that really fulfills me in my core at a very deeply honest level. So I started to try in an effort to be more honest. I, I finished law school because the access to health care was life changing. I was able to get knee surgery for torn, torn uh, meniscus that I've had. And I struggled with for ever since the car accident, I've been struggling with it. And it always bothered me. So I got that done. I got my orbital bone fixed. I had basically five surgeries in law school. So I utilized the healthcare system to access great, great medical attention to kind of fix a lot of things that I had back in my car accident. Uh, and then I kind of utilized the business school resources, the, uh, the counseling and the, the consulting for career advice to leverage my way into a career path that I felt that I had much more interest in because I I did not like, it's not that law school itself is a bad profession. It just wasn't the right profession for me. So um, when, I, when I finally was honest enough to say, I hate studying law, I tried to reconfigure, well, where do I go next? And I've always been a fan of the tech culture. I've always been a fan, like one of my heroes is Steve Jobs. And um, back when the first iPhone came out, I, I got the, ever since Apple's um, iPhone 3G, I've been a fan, a huge fan of Apple since, and I was mesmerized by Steve Jobs and other icons like him, uh, their ability to transform the, the consciousness, the, the culture, and uh, the society based on these products that they built. And now, you know, this is all common sense now. This, everybody has a smartphone, and, you know, I have like a Google Home now. So I was always, always a fan, and I always wanted to be a part of it, but I wasn't an engineer, and I wasn't... Uh, business major so I was like well what's my in and then I discovered that there's this field called technology sales and I was like well I love working with people um, I like to try to advocate and I was that's what I trained for in law school I had the best time ever because I got to utilize law school for what I really wanted to do and I focused on a lot on child advocacy we can go deeper into that later um, and it, it, it helped hone my advocacy skills that I use now in my current job and then long story short, from there, uh, a guy was lucky enough to get a job at IBM. So I'm currently a, a client representative in, in IBM. I basically, I, I'm like an account manager where I'm in charge. I own an, a certain account, a set, a, a set of um, businesses, and it's my job to be able to represent that client's interests to the max. So I can basically sell anything that IBM sells, and I 
try to advocate for the client and and, and provide the best service possible. Um, and that's that's where Agawa got here. That's awesome. No, that's a great that's a great story. And actually, I didn't know a bunch of those things. That's really cool. And so I have a bunch of questions to go um, after that. And I want to go back a little bit to talking about your parents and something I was going to ask later. But when you talk about your parents and them being um, what their situation that they went through, what do you think is one of the most important lessons that you learned from either your father or your mother? And how has that shaped you? Wow, um, that's a good question. I think one of the most important things I have learned from my parents is uh, intellectual curiosity. So, you know, part of being like, and it's, I want to differentiate what they did. And a lot of times there's a criticism of like, quote unquote, social justice warriors. And what's very different about what they did was I kind of likened them closer to uh, more of the revolutionary activities of, of people that stood up for human rights back in the 60s or the 70s. And that's kind of what they were doing. Uh, so that you risk life and limb to do that. They had basically no privilege. Uh, and and they've, they were, they've dedicated their entirety of their lives to fight for people from the gutter. But then in order to do that, you have to recognize something about the current program that's defunct, or something about the current system that is not working properly in your philosophical perspective, right, moral perspective. So then you have to then advocate for those that you think are most downtrodden, but in a way that's unjust. So that that type of environment at home, uh, and this is one of the reasons why I'm such a fan of Tupac. He's one of my favorite artists ever. And he, you know, it passed, post-mortem became like a big brother to me because his music, he was the son of Black Panthers. His mother was a very uh, uh, prominent Black Panther leader. And nobody really understands, like, there's not a support group for children of people that were, like, full-on, head-on into, like, the movement, quote-unquote, and fighting for what, this is how Tupac said it, like, she was so busy fighting for the people that she forgot about her people, so she grew up a lot on the streets. And that's kind of how my childhood was. Not as bad, not as, like, viscerally intense maybe as Tupac, but uh, that that kind of shaped my childhood as well. I spent a lot of time, like, running, running the, you know, running the block with the kids and the homies back in the day. Um, so the, what I learned was intellectual curiosity to question things. I don't, I, not to just blindly accept things because that is the status quo and that things can be different. And so I'm very moved by industry shakers and movers, people that they see a paradigm and they think, oh, what if we do it a different way? And that different way ends up helping uh helping the humanity at large. I, I'm very motivated by that, but that they've inspired that in me that I don't just always have to accept anything as is. There can, there can be a better, more efficient, and sometimes more just way of thinking and doing. So they taught me how to think. And so early on, that's kind of, and it was a it was a blessing that I'm now receiving more and later in life, but early on was very confusing because you go to school and you learn a certain way of thinking and it was so different at home. So I, I appreciate that they injected into the intellectual curiosity to question things and that I don't always have to just accept the status quo as is. So that's, I, it, there's a, they taught me a courage, a courage of 
being able to think different. If I want to take Apple's <laughs> commercial, think different. But yeah, the courage to think different. And um, so that's, I, I appreciate that about them. I also appreciate, they are two of the most loving and compassionate people that I've ever met. And so they taught me the value of the importance of empathy and the importance of compassion towards other people, particularly people in society that aren't given compassion oftentimes. And that's what motivated me in law school to focus almost the entirety of my time there on child advocacy. So all of my work, most of my work in law school revolved around the kids in group homes, foster youth, kids in juvenile detention, the kids that have fell, fallen through the cracks and are just teetering on the brink of destruction. And that was my cause. And I felt such a deep connection with them for a variety of reasons. But um, the, those, those uh, ethics for me were embedded since I was a child. And those are two things that come up on top of my head. Well, those are both really good. And now I have a, I have a, a bunch of questions. I could take that in uh, many different directions. Shoot, man, I'm, I'm open book. Okay, well, okay, well, the first question. So you challenged the status quo. What's something uh, that comes to mind that you think we should do differently? And maybe tie it into the child advocacy thing. Like what? And, oh, well, I'm going to try and tie this. I'm going to make this a convoluted question. I'm going to be a bad interviewer. Yeah. But, so how do we – What do? what's what's defunct about the system or what should be done differently? And what should we challenge? What's your intellectual curiosity around – um, the way there are people that are uh, neglected in society, and how do we change that? Wow, yeah, that's a lot. Um, I think, I, it, just to answer, it's a complex question, but I'll try to answer simply. I think one thing that we can do differently is to, and I think that there is, there is a great importance done in terms of knowledge, the teaching of knowledge. So people focus so much on how, uh, what to think, and I think that what I learned later in life and what helped my survival, I've been in kind of a survival state. Most of my 20s was survival, but even young, I, I remember, it's, it's always like you're always looking around your back, what's going to happen. Um, what I learned to kind of grow from that was critical thinking skills. So someone like me, I didn't really have an education. So after sixth grade, so my parents left Section 8 housing units when I was um, in sixth grade because my mom, my mom is brilliant. And she started, she was the first person in Maryland to open up a Montessori tutoring based system. And it became massively successful. She catered specifically towards children of Korean immigrants. So people that spoke maybe Korean at home, they didn't really know they were new to the culture, new to the country. And their kids were falling behind in school. My mom would take these kids and make them the best students in their entire class. Um, so they became a huge success. And she became a full-time, she went from, you know, taking care of me, raising me, and also being a nurse to, uh, and eventually she moved on to being full-time businesswoman to grow this tutoring program. And it was her choice. Uh, my dad at the time went from, he was a pastor. And then he went to full-time revolutionary. So he was like traveling to, for example, like Nicaragua. There was a Sandinista movement, which was a democratically people-elected um, government system, government uh, group that tried to kind of uh, re reorganize and kind of bring more more health to the society and the people. They were in a desolate situation, and there was a, a 
democratically elected government in the Sandinista movement. And there were a bunch of people that got together to help bring prosperity back to the people of Nicaragua. Um, they were all eventually assassinated by um, our government. But my dad would go to places like that and go support those movements like directly. So he spent most of my childhood, I barely saw my father because he was always in, he went to like a hundred different countries, went to Africa in, in, in rejection of apartheid. He went to all over Latin America during the 80s, um, so on and so forth. Like the Sandinista movement, it's kind of highlighted in that movie by Tom Cruise called American Made. Uh, it's now become just common knowledge. But back then in the 80s, nobody really knew about that kind of stuff unless you were in the movement. So to support his political activities, my mother worked all the time. And so during that period, we, she made enough money to move out of the hood. And, uh, but that kind of, that culture made such a deep impact on me. I just kept going back. So all of my free time outside of school, or sometimes I wouldn't go to school, I just spent going back to these section eight housing project units to, 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 to maintain my friend group. And, uh, uh, part of that process, I, barely remember studying for a test, doing a single piece of homework. So after sixth grade, I, my, I really didn't study. And I, I think there was an education gap that I had um, that I didn't resume until I was 27. After accident, after living in Asia for seven years, I resumed it. And I realized how important it is to think, to build your critical thinking skills and be able to think independently. And I didn't you don't understand that until your life is on the line. And when my survival became at risk, I realized how important it is to learn how to solve problems. And so for me, like, that's what was so important about uh, my journey was currently, if, if I have to um, say what I got from a lot of the, my childhood and their activities was the importance of being able to grow and evolve as a human being, the mind, in the process of thinking about how to think more so than what to think. How do I process through information? How do I deal with problems? How do I do? And that, that has been very eye, eye opening for me. And that was a big impact from uh, kind of uh, maybe the sub, uh, the results of a lot of their work. And I, I, I grew up watching. <laughs> no, I, I like that a lot. Um, so how do you teach, a community or a society to have compassion, to have more compassion, more empathy, especially for those who are on the edge of of our communities or the people that are the quote unquote outcasts. Wow, I don't know. <laughs> That's a good question. I don't know. Um, all I know is that I just try to do my best to do my part. I've I'm kind of I've changed. I have a different kind of philosophical perspective than my parents. My parents are still very involved in trying to change the world systemically. I feel it is much more, this is my opinion, humble opinion, but I feel it's more effective to just focus really, really hard on yourself and your self-growth and your self-evolution and let the side effect of that process be a benefit. So, um, and I had, to, I had that experience working with the children and, and group homes and foster care and, uh, children that were abandoned and like in the streets. And I kind of, because I had gotten to a point where I had kind of lived through some of the things that they're living through now. Um, but I was able to, to produce something positive from it, whether it was my development intellectually, whether it was my regaining my health after utter de devastation. Um, so I was able to communicate with them in a way 
uh, like empathize with them in a way that I don't think most like juvenile defenders or child advocates had because a lot of times like a lot of my peers had never couldn't even imagine what these kids were going through but they felt some sort of deep compassion for these children so they they would go and have sympathy but they didn't have empathy because they didn't go through similar things I went through a lot of those similar things so for me it was just I kind of looked at it as one project one child at a time one case at a time um, and then for me, I, I focused a lot on how do I keep evolving myself. And when I really focused on my own self-evolution, it, it's, it's hard not to be humbled because you realize how flawed you are. So it's a process of being very honest about what I need to work on and grow. And that, and that type of thinking is important when you come from zero. It, you don't really need that type of self-evolution thinking if things are comfortable. But that's... So for me, I really didn't have a lot of comfort, especially like later on in my adulthood when I left home to kind of like piece my life back together. Um, when when I didn't have any much material comfort and I was living in situations that were rather extreme. And that's when this self-development mindset was so critical because I had nothing to really fall back on. Um, so that is how through that process I've gained a deeper compassion for those uh, for other people who struggle and the higher the struggle the more compassion I seem to feel but I've been more kind of focused on my growth so it's like a it's like a double paradigm where like a, a two-sided uh, mentality where on one side I'm very hyper focused on my self-growth my inner peace um, my self-evolution and I want to keep improving on the other side externally I try to have as much compassion for people not like me or like me or whoever is out there through struggle, I try to feel that across the spectrum. And that's, that's kind of like the base of my philosophy. So one thing that results from it is I try to think multiple times before I criticize something. Before I criticize something, I try to really hard to put myself in that person's shoes. And it's not that hard for me to imagine myself um, in anybody else's suffering because I, I think that the, the benefit of going through really intense suffering is that you develop this like registry of pain. And so what happens is you can, if you can just like branch that pain out, like kind of magnify it out, you see that it's all these different types of colors. And so when you meet someone and they are, if they're vulnerable and honest enough with you and they share their story, they have a certain color of pain. You can, Oh yeah, I have, I've seen or felt that pain before, or if not directly, you can imagine it. And it's vivid and close enough to them where you can actually feel genuine empathy. So that's kind of like um, my approach to trying to change the world for the better is I work on myself. And along the journey, I try to feel as much compassion as I can for other people um, along the way. Uh, that's really good. That's a great. I, I really appreciate you sharing that. And, and the big the couple of takeaways for me from that is. Um, experiencing what they experience and that's a little bit a little bit hard for me uh, just because of my life situation and where I grew up and um, it is hard if you don't experience what they experience what they go through then it is hard to understand what where they're coming from and then like what you said it's easy to judge if we allow ourselves to and so taking that step back thinking about what they're going through who they are and then 
try and put yourself in their shoe before you judge them and judge their experiences. And so I really appreciate yeah. what you just said. That's super, that's helpful for me because that's something that I struggle with a lot is judging too quickly and how to not judge, but to be more compassionate. I also think that it's a individual thing, meaning I think people, you know, everybody is born with a different set of strengths and weaknesses. And some people are like greater inclined to be much more proficient logical thinkers and mathematical thinkers. I like, so I don't, I know that this has been disproven, but if you want to say like more left brained, um, I was born always very super emotional. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was, so it wasn't hard for me to communicate a, whatever emotion that I was feeling on the inside. I, I've been always like, I was better at being able to communicate that emotion vividly rather than be able to think logically. So ironically, <laughs> I went to law school, which is all about the science of logic. Um, but yes, and it helped me learn better critical thinking skills that I'm now using today to help my family, to help myself and better myself and get myself out of some, you know, not uh, like get myself out of uh, uh, not the best circumstances and get my family out of not the best circumstances and through this problem solving method. But my gift was always emotional communication. So I think it maybe I had a, uh, more of a knack for feeling this way. And I know that there are people who are very gifted at more logical executive function, decision-making skills, who, who make perfect CEOs. Like I, I'm listening to the uh, audio book of Steve Jobs right now by the, the biography of him written by Walter Isaacson. And you can listen to, you get a, you get a pretty, you get a very interesting detailed look into the mind of this genius and the way that he thinks. And I'm like, wow, he, I don't think anything like what was Steve Jobs thing? He was just gifted in a way of being able to, um, they call it his reality distortion field, where he can see the the flaws of a system very rapidly, and he could he was able to envision, or he had a vision that was very in tune with most people, it seems, and so he was able to impact other people to carry out that vision, and he was also a really gifted, uh, gifted viewer of talent, but he was also ruthless in being able to put that vision into effect. And that's something that I don't have. I've always been very, uh, it's something that I'm working on to be not so scared of ruffling some feathers in order to get the job done. So this current job that I have, you have to do that. In sales, if you're afraid of rejection, if you're afraid of insulting somebody by accident, or you're never going to get anything done because you need to produce. Nobody cares about anything unless you bring the numbers. So it's been actually a very, uh, very fulfilling growth period for me to be able to overcome that. But some people are just born with that. Some people don't care what you think. They're just so. Yeah, I have. I have the the downside of my kind of uh, being able to feel people is that I can be compassionate. I won't say that. I don't want to like. That sounds kind of weird. I I can be people pleasing to a fault, and so I think like they. So for you, on the other hand, you might feel like you struggle with it. But on the other hand, you might also be way better at critical thinking skills and problem solving than I am. Could be. Could be. There, there, I'm sure there's some something that I'm good at out there somewhere. <laughs> we, if we dig deep enough, I'm sure we can find explicit. something. You get, the, get the microscope out somewhere. Um, okay, so you've hit on it a couple of times. And really the, the main point I wanted to – uh, have you on the podcast for was to tell us about the story from when you were in Korea, the accident. I don't want to tell the story. I want you to tell the story. But really, I mean, the takeaway that I had is you had these three bullet points when I first heard this story. 
And the bullet yeah. point you had for this was finding peace within the chaos. So why don't you tell us about the story, um, the struggles that you went through, and we'll go from there. Sure. Um, I think the lead up to this car accident, uh, which left me in a coma, um, and uh, my sister died in my arms in this car accident. Uh, so it was kind of like the worst case scenario of all worst case scenarios where you lose the precious loved one, especially someone who you're directly responsible for. And she's lost in your arms and then you're dealing with this survival, uh, survivor's guilt. That was that this survivor's guilt painted the entirety of my twenties. So now I'm older now, you know, I'm in my thirties and, uh, I'm just starting my career. I'm I'm on the same career path as my peers that I sit next to are 10 years younger than me. But part of the reason why it took me so long is because it took me this long to get to a point where I said, I feel whole again and I can move, I can move forward now. So what the background lead up to this was even before the car accident, this peace within the chaos mindset is maybe the, the cornerstone of my philosophy that I took from a lot of this meditation, martial arts practice that I did, uh, that I did since I was martial arts. I started when I was really young but I ended up living in the mountains for two years to study meditation after the car accident. And it's formed this, this concept for me of accepting the chaos. So uh, the, the peace within the chaos mentality is a lot of times we exacerbate the suffering that we feel because we resist, we ignore, or we're, we willfully ignore, or we just like are ignorant to a lot of this external onset of chaos, whatever it may be, a job loss, a breakup, a family death, physical pain, mental pain, whatever that may be. And what we do is we just like run from it. We run from it. And so for me, uh, that chaos was so intense that my, I felt that my survival was always teetering at the brink of destruction. And so when I was, uh, that started, that chaos started really intensely for me around the age of 14. So around the, around the age of 13, so my, at that time is when I, when I just left the hood, or I, I'll, I'll say it, when I just left the Section 8 housing projects, and, uh, but I was still hanging out with all the kids from back in, the, back, uh, in those neighborhoods, and I was getting beat up like every day was, was a very common experience. I got jumped all the time, got my lunch money taken all the time, and that was just my childhood. And I, I, don't, I didn't know that people don't go a lot of people don't go through stuff like that. So physical violence was a norm, uh, was a normal experience. Um, so that was my default. And then at 13, my parents adopt uh, this uh, little girl named Shun. She was three months old. There was an ad in the newspaper calling for help. So this local church uh, was looking for a family to adopt uh, about five children from this completely a uh, desolate home. There was a Korean parent, there's uh, two Korean, there's a Korean couple living in another different Section 8 housing project in Maryland. Uh, the mother was mentally and physically so ill that she basically non-existent. She was like leaning on the wall when I met her, couldn't really communicate. So then she's not present. The dad was abusive. The dad was chaotic. And so these, you have these five children, the youngest of being three months old, that all needed to be taken into foster care. But the three-month-old child was malnourished to an extent where she was dying. So my dad being, you know, my parents being who they are, they, they responded immediately, said, well, we'll save the youngest one. So we adopted uh, my sister, baby sister, Shun. 
at three months old. And the most beautiful <laughs> picture I'd ever seen. And I became obsessed. So my identity went from just being this idiot, dumb kid running, trying to be hard when I'm not. I'm like the softest person ever and trying to, trying to play this role of being the tough guy. Uh, at 13 to being my whole identity became my her protector and her big brother and so i would come home from school and usually if i would go to these various neighborhoods and kick it i would just go home just because i wanted to stare at this infant all day and i would like wake up in the middle of the night just to look in her crib i was just i i, I couldn't stop thinking about her about a year later her birth parents took her back and this is like 1990 like like mid 1990s at that time uh, child advocacy movement hadn't gained enough traction yet, and child laws were all set up in a way where the biological parents had absolute rights. So even though we had adopted her, and the formal adoption papers hadn't been completed yet because there was so much, the process was so messy. So they had absolute child rights, and when they said that they wanted to take her back, we had to give her back. So after about a year of like completely falling in love with this child, we had to give her away. And that was completely, utterly devastating to me. At 14, I felt like I had lost. And every day, I, I remember crying every day. And I started to get into a lot more trouble. So I, I went where I was weakest, where, which was this penchant for chaos. And so I got into trouble more. In middle school, there was a group of children for, called the Mentoring Club. There were about like 10 or a dozen children, the worst performing kids who were uh, most at risk of you know, getting locked up or getting in trouble, they put into this group called the Mentoring Club. And there was a professor or a teacher named Mr. Ramsey who don't, like, donated his own time, his own free time, to, to create this after-school program to, to keep us out of trouble. I was, I was one of those kids. And that was kind of like, that's all I, I wanted. It was weird. I mean, I was so young, and I, was, uh, I didn't know how to process that loss. And I remember, uh, and then a year after that, my sister came back to us. So then they obviously, you know, had the same problem that they had before they took her. And when they took her back, they malnourished her again, and she was dying again at two. So if you can imagine, the first two years of my sister's life was uh, pure hell. And so uh, they took her back, and then they called all of a sudden my dad and said, can you take her back? We can't take care of her anymore. So the poor little girl, my dad flies, gets on a plane, goes to Arkansas and readopts my sister. And he, he says he remembers, he walks into the door and he yells her name, Shuna, and she bolts, this two-year-old bolts out of the door, jumps onto my dad, shaking, and holds my dad's neck. And he said that when he got back on the plane, they, he couldn't take her off of him. So, I mean, I, I, I still get really emotional. Sorry thinking about all the pain that she must have experienced, that poor girl. So when she got, came back to us, she was now two. She had been so traumatized and re-traumatized that at the beginning, she wouldn't even go to my mom. So for a month, we had to like painstakingly get her kind of reacclimated to being with her family again. So my whole kind of mentality was I, we were all kind of OCD about her. And she, was, she had all these anxiety problems, like couldn't deal with strangers. And uh, this led to a year kind of after she came back to us. The next year, um, I got in trouble. I, I was with uh, some of my friends, and I, I was arrested for three charges of grand larceny. So that's basically a felony. Um, and uh, due to that, I was, I was given, I, I pleaded to the court, 
for leniency and they gave me reduced it to one charge of grand larceny that's still on my record to this day because the state of i think it was fairfax virginia at the time they were very uh, juvenile laws were strict and they were more on retribution than um re uh, recuperating the the subject uh, but i was i was given uh 400 hours or something of community service and uh i was given one year of probation and I didn't go to I didn't go to juvie, so I was that that small bit of fortune, I'm sure impacted my life so much. But that happened a month after that. My mom got diagnosed with terminal cancer. So this is all when I'm 16. So 16, uh, I got I got I get locked up when I get arrested, and then my life changes because of this this felony that I have on me at 16. Um, I was fortunate. So this this people that I got arrested with, my one of my best friends, Damien, he was from foster care. So he got kicked out of foster care, went back to his crackhead, uh, his mother who was a crack addict, uh, went to D.C., and he joined this notorious D.C. gang, eventually got arrested for um, attempted murder of a rival gang member, got 18 years in prison, Whoa. from what I from what I understand. Yes, yeah, so this is how narrow this, this walk is. For me, I had two loving parents. I had two loving parents, and mo I realized like, this compassion thing, when you look at people that like don't make it, a lot of times, not all the time, right? But a lot of times they just needed one person to hug them and say, I care and love, love you. Even though it's an obviously imperfect relationship and imperfect people involved, they just needed one person. So many children that end up in lockup or so many children that are in group homes, they didn't have that one person. And that's why they're suicidal. That's why they cut themselves. That's why they do drug overdoses. That's why they go in the streets and sell their bodies because they're like, why do I even care? Nobody loves me. And so for me, my greatest fortune was that I had two parents who genuinely loved me and cared about me. So when I when that happened, um, I was able to stop getting in trouble and I started to be a better student. I got my grades. I went from like a two something GPA and I got it up to like all A's, uh, all A's in one B almost every uh, every quarter after that or every semester after that. Um, and part of what motivated me to do that was my mom got sick. So she had terminal cancer. So she goes, they, they said that <clears throat> to prepare your affairs, that she's going to die in three months, max. Like she has three months to live, max. And that's the best case scenario. The cancer is spread to her lymph nodes and all of her internal organs. There's like zero chance that she can make it. And um, my, I remember my dad telling me, and I remember crying. And that was, you know, I, we had already been through a lot because of my arrest. And now my poor mom, who was basically my angel, who was... Uh, did the majority of the raising for me. <clears throat> now that uh, she's not going to be here anymore, my poor sister is three years old at this time. Uh, and she's still dealing with all her own trauma. And uh, so I say, we're not, we're not going to accept this reality. I will visit every hospital possible. So then at the age of 16, I became, you had to be, I had to become an adult. I had to become my sister's protector, my mom's protector. So then I started to go to the library every day. I started reading books about treatments for uh, cancer. Any possible chance that there was that she could survive it, I wanted to find it. And so we ended up choosing Johns Hopkins, and they, they did, um, they did the, uh, the mes double mastectomy uh, full. And to this day, she still has two big scars across her chest. They ripped off all of the muscles surrounding her, uh, her chest. So like her body kind of caves in because there's no muscle tissue around her chest. And then she started treatments of chemotherapies. And so while she was doing chemotherapy, about the she had like I think maybe nine total treatments, about two treatments in. So she's like wasting away from the chemo. Her hair is falling out. 
she found out that my father had been um, unfaithful for almost a decade. And so what happened was, and this is, uh, the irony of this is that these were social activists, you know, so in a, in a sense, they were like these supposedly beacons of moral justice, right? And then, and my dad, who also who grew up abandoned, uh, he never had parents that loved him. And he had to become a parent to his younger siblings to help them survive at a very young age. And that hardened him in a way. And now, like, we, I have the greatest relationship with my father now. But today, at that point in time, when that happened, my mom tried to kill herself. So she... Uh, it was too much for her. She, you know, the, my sister coming in and then leaving and then coming back and then, you know, me getting arrested. And then right after that, she, she's diagnosed with cancer. So her survival is like everybody, all the experts are saying, you're going to die. Just like prepare yourself mentally. So we're making a last ditch effort to do anything possible to, to help her survive. And then she finds out the man that she's been working 20 hours a day to help him do whatever activities that he wanted to do in terms of the, you know, doing uh, fighting for the movement or people downtrodden or people that are oppressed around the world was has been unfaithful for the past decade. And so the, the pain was so severe that she went into shock and she tried to kill herself. And so I remember coming home. This is like, I think I was 17. I'd come home, pick up my sister from daycare. And my mom was always home at this time. She stopped working. So my, my dad had to resume his work in order to pay the bills. But we ended up losing the house. We had a we had we had to file for bankruptcy because we all of our money went into the healthcare treatment. Um, but I come home and I call for my mom and she's not answering. So I walk up the steps and I see uh, her. The, there was a note, like a love letter, that my dad had written to this mistress. And uh, and I and this is this is something that's very vulnerable, uh, very sensitive to me. And I'm 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 just sharing it because I feel like it's cathartic. <laughs> But it also very uh, it it paints my journey a lot. Um, this experience. So I come go upstairs and she's lying on the floor with a bottle of empty painkillers uh, that they give her for for dealing with the chemo. She had taken the whole bottle and drank uh, a fifth of vodka, and she's knocked out. And you know she's basically going into um, she's she's dying. So I my sister was with me at the time and she's like freaking out. So I basically lock her in a room and then I'm like trying to like wake her up. There was a letter that she was holding that my, you know, like I said, that she, my dad had written to his mistress that he ripped up that she pieced back together, and that's how she found out about it. Um, so then I call the hospital. Uh, they rush her to ER. They pump her stomach, and she survives. And then my relationship with my father went from me looking up to him like, you know, he was like the Korean Malcolm X for me. I looked up to him like, I didn't really have a relationship with him, but I respected and revered and feared him. My dad's a tall, handsome, big bones, like strong guy. <laughs> you know, so I, I, I respected and feared this man in a very masculine, deep voice. Um, and then he went from that to being my public enemy number one. And I remember chasing him around the house with a knife. Like the way that I knew how to solve problems was violence back then. So I chased him around the knife. I, I really wanted to kill him. And I said, uh, I, I remember him crying. And, and this is the, and we'll touch upon this topic too, but this is why I'm, grateful for the parents that I have because a man or a human being is judged oftentimes not so much by mistakes that he makes as everybody but makes mistakes especially people from really rough uh, deprived depraved backgrounds like my father and also myself we make mistakes because we have to learn a lot of our lessons on our own it's how you respond to those mistakes and he he completely dedicated to his family 
ever since, and he's made everything right. Um, and he's, he's uh, re-entered my life as my hero. But at this particular point in time, um, all of this rage that I had from, I, it, 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 it uh, kind of planted this really deep seed of rage in my heart. And so I, I told him, holding the knife in my room that day, that you make this right with mom or I'm no longer your son and I'm taking my sister and my mother and I'm leaving you. And I told him. And he, he honored his promise. He said he'll make it right. So um, that, was, that was a really big moment in my life. My mom ended up stopping the chemo midway through. Um, and then she, you know, she went on this uh, journey of trying to heal herself through natural, quote-unquote, natural means. But long story short, she survived the chemo. And then a year after that, to celebrate her survival and my sister's rejuvenated health. Um, my sister was healthy again. Uh, she was a prodigy. So she was at the age of four. She was reading and writing at a second grade level uh, for both math. And for, she was reading and writing English at a second grade level, also Korean. Um, and she was uh, her math was also at a second grade level. So she was tutoring children in second grade at the age of four on how to do math problems. So my, my sister was the opposite of me. I was the worst performer in school. <laughs> I was like not the smartest kid ever. Uh, I was more, I had a better knack for performing. I always danced and sang and imitated Michael Jackson and uh, Bruce Lee all the time. Those are my heroes. Though that's what I did well, but I, was, I wasn't good in class. I couldn't, I couldn't read a book for my life. Uh, but my sister was very gifted. So to celebrate this, we had our first ever family trip. And then my dad took us to Korea. So in Korea, there was a night evening where my parents had to go to a meeting and left my sister alone with my dad's best friend and uh, their chauffeur. Chauffeur, excuse me. Gotta go a little <laughs> no, we, we like the French version. I, I don't even know how to speak French. Me, me trying, to, trying to act all sophisticated. <laughs> it was great. But uh, left us, and it was very eerie because my mom felt a very weird feeling, she said, that evening, like a terrifying she felt like a terror in her heart. And my sister, too, it, it, was, it was hard for her to start getting used to strangers before if anybody came into the house that she didn't know, she would run to the nearest family member and hold on to their leg shaking because she, was, she had PTSD from her birth parents taking her for a year. We had gotten her to a point where she was okay with strangers. But that day, when my parents left, she, she was unconsolable for like five hours. So I spent that the, the, the night before the car accident, right before she passed, I spent all night trying to entertain her. So one of the things that I would do was I would, I would use my penchant for, like, I was kind of a, uh, I think I, if I was born for anything, I was born for performing. And so I would dance, sing, make up games, do whatever I could. Like, I, I used to sing Little Mermaid to her all the time or Disney songs. And that was the way that I would calm her down when she would have panic attacks. And she was having this panic attack for a five-year-old kid. And so I had these, like, Chinese medicine balls that I was juggling. And I made a game where she would take one and I would sing. And eventually she calmed down and she was happy again. And then she went to sleep exhausted. And then I, I fall asleep as well. We wake up three hours later and at 7 in the morning. And the, 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 my dad's best friend's like, hey, we want to give you a tour of the countryside. So we get in the car, and the driver had a knack for speeding. And in country roads, there's not many other cars, and it's pretty open and wide. So this guy would always speed, and my dad had given him a comment before, like, you should slow down. You're kind of going too fast. 
Um, so he was driving really fast on a road, and this this countryside was just all fields. And the interesting thing of how life works out is there's nothing else in the field except in the middle of one, like the side of one part of the road. And this is the only part of the road that has this, was this giant concrete pillar. And so as the car is speeding towards this pillar, all of a sudden the right brake malfunctions and locks up. So not in, if it was the left brake, it would have, the car would have careened, like veered off the road into the field and we would have all survived. Probably, probably. But the right brake locked up at the precise moment that it careened the car into the pillar. So what that did was going so fast that uh, my dad's best friend died. The driver was mangled. Uh, he survived it, but his body, till this day, from what I hear, he's not mentally all there. Um, my sister, who was, my sister and I was in the back seat, the right, the passenger side, rear back seat. And she, because she was so sad from my parents not being there, she, you know, she clung onto my lap. And because there were like other people in the car, she felt, we both fell asleep together in, the, in my lap. And so we both, because, uh, <clears throat> and I didn't have my seatbelt on, so we both flew out of the window. And my, I basically went head first into uh, concrete, apparently. And um, she, because she was so young, she died from a puncture to her skull. And her internal organs blew up. So she combusted, basically, because the pressure, the G-force, I'm assuming, was so high. I don't know if I'm not a physics major. but um, So that's, that's what the medical result was, that her internal organs blew up, and she had a puncture to her skull, and she died in my arms. So then the rest of this was told to me through eyewitness accounts of one of the surviving members of the car accident. So I get up. I pick her body up. And she's, you know, there's, there's blood everywhere. I, my head's busted open. My face is all cr cracked in. I broke my orbital bone. Uh, I crashed my, uh, I couldn't see out of my right eye. My nose was completely broken and all my jaw was broken. So every single one of my teeth were dangling like, like, um, like wind chimes. Um, so at this moment I look at my sister and she's, you know, not moving. And so I get her, I pick her up and I start running and I'm screaming for help, but it's the countryside. There's nobody there. Um, at that moment, as, as I'm, as I'm about to go cross over, uh, this army truck just drives by and picks us up and takes us to the hospital. I get to the hospital and them seeing my sister dead, they're trying to pry her off me and I get very protective. So I, I don't remember this, this is all unconscious for me, but I, re I remember hearing like yelling and screaming. And apparently I attacked the whole hospital staff out of like, a, I guess a protective older brother instinct. They were trying to take her body from me and I just started wailing on people. So they said it took 10 people to restrain me and put me under and then I went into a coma for a week. I think a couple of days to a week. And then when I awoke, I couldn't move. So I spent two months in ICU, intensive care. The first month, I couldn't move at all. And so they had to, the nurses had to bathe me. They had to cart me around in a wheelchair. So when I was 18, I, what, I started martial arts when I was five. I started growing into my body. <clears throat> Excuse me. And my fitness had improved. And I was like shredded. I'd finally gotten, I mean, I was obsessed with Bruce Lee and I finally got my body to a point where I was like ripped and I, and I was so cocky and, and it filled my ego and I loved it. And I loved like taking my shirt off. And then now I'm just bones because <laughs> I, I couldn't eat. All my jaw was broken. So for, for two months I had no solid food. And so I've experienced what it's like to go into deep levels of starvation. 
and you really do start hallucinating. I started. I remember like the second month. Uh, I like the first month. I was surrounded by nurses because I was in critical position. They didn't know I would make it. So around the clock supervision. I was on a lot of pain medication. And then by the second month, I could slowly start walking. So I started. They put me in a different like housing hospital unit that was way more isolated. So I spent most days, most hours by myself. And all I had was a book, a TV. And then, um, and then they would, you know, I still, I couldn't eat any solid food because my, my, I couldn't chew. My teeth were so broken. So everything was like bound and shut. Um, I remember like seeing a whopper like in, in the room, like float, like vividly with the, the grease dripping down on the bun. Like I could, I remember that. Um, a, a whopper burger. Yeah, like a hamburger. Like <clears throat> I was hallucinating on food, and and so uh, you go from like the the hierarchy of needs where I was put in total survival mode. So at the age of eighteen, I'm basically a baby again. I need full supervision. I needed to be fed. I needed to be carted around. <clears throat> I needed to be held. I couldn't do anything. I, you, I lost all of my independence, and so. At 18, when most people go off to college, at that time, I didn't even apply to college. I didn't even have that type of concept. Um, I was trying to learn how to rewalk, rechew. My head injuries were so bad, so I have a huge scar on my head, and it comes from my head being split open from the car accident. So if I wasn't the brightest kid before, I was it, the, that type of head trauma, you lose a lot of IQ points, those precious... IQ points that can prevent you from making some extra mistakes. Uh, I lost a bunch of them. So like several standard deviations of IQ dipped. So what normally would be like a very easy problem to solve, like when I was younger, maybe 18, prior to the accident where uh, like you you would just like a problem would come up and then it would just be a, a gut reaction or it would be a, a knee-jerk reaction just like to, to solve it, I would go into chaos. The smallest things would throw me into a loop, and I couldn't figure myself problems out. And so I went in, uh, and then on top of all of that, um, when I got out of the ICU, that's when they told me that my sister had passed. So it was, I didn't know they they lied to me and said that I saved her, and they did. They made that decision because they didn't think I would make it. I was too physically fragile, and I think that's correct because what got me through the days. And got me through, like, I looked different. You know, my face was crashed in. My teeth were all broken. I lost all my body just wasted away from being immobile. You know, you, you're, you're a vegetable. So, like, I was, I, all I could see was bones. And the thing that got me out mentally was the fact that they told me my sister had survived. And they're like, they told me they survived and she just started school. She can't wait to see you. So every day, all I did was count off the days until I would see her. And I said, I would have easily gone through that accident a thousand times for the over. I would have gone through it for the rest of eternity as long as my sister was safe. And that was my mentality. That's what kept me alive. If I didn't, if I knew at that point in time that she didn't make it and that she died in my arms, I probably would have taken my own life. There was no, I didn't have any purpose anymore. I failed my one duty as a brother. And so when I, I learned on the plane ride back to America from Korea, my dad, I kind of felt this weird air. And then he starts gripping my hand and he starts shaking and crying. And that's when I knew. And the trauma, so there's like double trauma, right? So you get one huge trauma from almost dying in a car accident and being thrown into a coma. But then the, 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 for me, the bigger trauma was the fact that my sister didn't make it. This poor five-year-old girl that had already been through enough. 
she didn't make it and ended up they said that she probably saved my life because she was sitting on my lap and took the brunt of the impact that I would have had to my internal organs. So improved my chances for survival was the speculation from the doctors. And so not only did I not save her, but she probably died trying to save me in effect. Yeah. And so living with that um, was hell. It was pure hell. <laughs> and I lived in that pure hell mental state for maybe five to seven years post. And now I've, gotten to a point in my life where I've made peace with the majority of it. I still miss her dearly. I would still give anything to just hold her again and tell her how much I love her. But that's not how the cards work. And you have to bear that burden for your family because your family suffers. So my parents had to go through not only the death of their daughter, but also the crippling of their son, the mental and physical crippling of their son. And so they were all hands on deck trying to, make sure that I'm okay. And nobody's really prepared to deal with something like that. So after trying for a year, I went back, I entered community college. I started off as a theater major. And then eventually I cracked, I broke mentally and physically. And I just was like, I'd try to, you know, I'd do stupid things like get super drunk and try to start a fight with like a gang of like 40 people or just run into oncoming traffic. I just, I didn't want to live. And so at a last ditch effort, my mom tried everything to try to support me. My dad tried everything. They, at a last ditch effort, my mom urged me to go to this mountain training program. And so I left at the age of 19, I left home, what was like for me at the time forever, to enter this very exclusive, uh, intensive mountain training program in Korea. It's called in the Chiri Mountain of Korea. And the, this is significant historically because in ancient times, or that's the, I think the, uh, I don't know if it's a folklore or this is true, but no, this is actual history. But in the old times, Chiri Mountain was historic for people going there to seek enlightenment through training. So there was this um, meditation martial art called Kuksundo. And my mother had utilized Kuksundo to regain her health post chemotherapy. And so she got connected to the head kind of. Uh, mentor uh, leader of the organization there that ran this mountain training program. So you basically devote your life for two years in the mountains to basically train meditation, yoga, and martial arts all day. Um, and you live this very monastic life uh, to, to, to kind of gain kind of uh, to develop your, your mind and body, right? To kind of the concept is to harmonize your mind, body, and spirit. And so I went, and because really I had nothing else going for me. And so I went, and so in this very traumatized state, I spent two years, and um, I didn't really utilize that time maybe the best. I wasn't the best student, uh, but it was probably saved my life, I think. I, I don't, I was so destructive post-accident that um, being in the middle of nowhere in the mountains with a group where all you do is meditate, eat really super, I mean, we were farmed for a lot of some of our food, like the produce. Like we farmed and grew like carrots and stuff. So it was the, the healthiest, most extreme solution that I think I can think of. And because of that, I didn't have unhealthy outlets. And I didn't, like a lot of the things that I was going through, I, they probably could have locked me up. I probably could have died. I probably could have ended up in prison or they would have put me in a psych ward. But because I was around this nature, and a lot of the people were so supportive there. I'd like, I met people like that treated me like, like a brother and 
um, it helped me heal gradually. Uh, and that's kind of how I got to the mountains. Were, were, did, um, did you have access to technology or did they cut you off from technology like TVs? Nope, and, nothing. Nothing, nothing. Okay. Nope. Um, no, no TV, no phone. Um, my mom communicated me through writing handwritten letters. Wow. Uh, she would send me letters through mail. So you live, you had to, it was uh, at that time, I was like, what the hell am I doing here? So it was almost, it was, the culture shock was so extreme that that was also traumatizing in a way. Mm -hmm. But looking back, it was, it, uh, I got to experience what uh, a time capsule, how people would have lived like hundreds of years ago, maybe. And that was, um, now it gives me a source of confidence when I'm, when I go into situations where I'm unprepared or I feel, you know, you get this imposter syndrome, like, ah, this is out of my league. The reassurance is that, oh, I survived this mountain training program, so it'll be okay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I empathize a lot with them. And I know it's not the same thing, but a lot of like veterans like yourself, yeah. I, I, I feel a connection with veterans because and, and it's a very different thing, obviously, you're, you know, you're fighting for your country and you're, you're, you're putting your life on the line in a different way. But the, the removal of yourself from society and being around this band of brothers and your survivals. And there was this a survival sense of me because I was reeling from this post accident. And also like you're, you're like farming for your food and, you know, you're training in the woods and like my, my hands were always bleeding from punching like logs that we had set up in our, like we, we built our training facility and stuff like that and doing manual labor, drinking water out of a river, stuff like that. You, you, uh, it, it sparks something inside of you. And I, I think I, I, I kind of, when I meet veterans, I, when we talk about that shared experience, kind of relate. Yeah, no, for sure. You know, I came, I, I, I hope I'm not misspeaking, but I feel like you told me one time that there was this first sunrise that you saw in the mountains during this training. Yeah. Yeah. Could you tell me about yeah. that? Like that experience, kind of what your feelings were when you had that first. Sunrise? Yeah. So, so, um, obviously my body, <clears throat> whatever, fitness level that I had attained pre-accident was completely gone post-accident because of the, the amount of atrophy that I had from being completely immobile for two months. Um, and then I didn't really take care of my body after that. Uh, and I kind of rushed into physical activity. Your mind thinks that it could do all the things that it used to do. Like I remember not feeling a lot of limitations physically at 18. Like I would do stuff like, um, just for fun, like there's a movie called Rumble in the Bronx by Becky Chan. Uh -huh. And he yeah, does this thing where he hops on the fence. Like, yeah, and I would do stuff like that, like just do flips. And I, I felt like I was, I was like 135, but I could bench like two something. And I was just like, a, I was like a really strong, compact guy for my size. Mm -hmm. uh, but that was all gone. And I tried to rush back into martial arts activity and I kept getting hurt. Excuse me one second. I, I think my... Um, yeah, sorry, I had somebody was trying to call. And uh, so I tried to rush back into getting hurt. So one of the things that I was dealing with was always having my knees hurt and my knees, like, getting retorn in the mountains because part of the mountain activity was to wake up at 5 a.m. And, and hike this mountain. Um, and my body wasn't prepared to deal with that type of arduous struggle. And so I remember every time I would go up, it was the hardest thing I'd ever done physically in my life. It was so difficult. And one thing, you're up so early. Two, when you're hiking up a mountain and that early, it's dark. So now you have this physical pain, this physical exhaustion. You're hungry. You haven't eaten. Um, and also I'm dealing with all my trauma of the absence of my sister and the kind of the PTSD effects of the car accident. 
And so you're when you're hiking up this mountain, you, all those demons come up because the physical exhaustion and pain exacerbates the mental struggle. For me, it did. Um, so I, I'm hiking up this mountain and I'm hating every second of it, and I'm I'm praying <laughs> that I die every every second of that journey. And then you get to the summit, and the summit was uh, the top of the mountain. And when you get there, you see this massive expanse of mountain range. And the, the objective was to go through the physical pain, endure it, and then you get to the mountain, and then you do the yoga, and then you do your meditation, and you come back down. That was our morning training, the first part of our day. So uh, we, we, I would get up, and... Um, one day, I think there was like there was really no clouds, and uh, I got to the top, and and I think I was about maybe half a year into this mountain training program. So slowly, physically and mentally, I was adapting to this um, this this lifestyle, and uh, so I was started to actually do invest more in the training. And part of the training was these a lot of these deep breathing exercises. That was the focal point was learning how to meditate. And so I'm meditating, and then the sun rises. And when you're that high up at, at that altitude, the sun looks massive. And there's, like, no pollution, so the sky is super clear. And, like, filled the whole horizon. And I remember feeling as the sun was rising and your body's uncomfortable, you can feel the warmth. And in that moment, like, I, I thought of my sister along with the sun, and I felt this, like, embrace and I remember crying because it was so beautiful. I was so uh, – it's one of the first times that I felt, like, humbled by the magnificence of nature. Like, it was so all – I was awestruck. And I remember crying. My, my shirt was all wet. And that's kind of what I think happens when, um, when somebody very traumatized tries to do meditation or deal with a lot of their problems is that those traumas resurface. But you deal with them. And then the uh, – ultimate objective, which took me a lifetime, but is to accept non-judgmentally and then eventually let go of that trauma. Uh, for me, that was the importance. And so the, the meditation concepts helped me do that. But that's when it really started for me. That journey was back in the mountains and this, this, um, this magnificent sunrise that I had seen. Uh, it, it was, that was the kind of the, the beginning to, wow, I feel a little bit better about the things that I've gone through. And I just kept doing it. Yeah. No, I totally yeah. agree. And I feel like for me, I mean, in a somewhat different way, but the same thing is that whenever I go hiking, especially when I'm by myself and I kind of do these meditative or reflective um, things, that I feel like in a way some of my most spiritual experiences come when I'm by myself up in the mountains. And like you said, looking over some expanse and just kind of thinking about something beyond myself and it's kind of hard to put into words i'm not ever good at explaining it but i kind of in a way understand what that experience was like yeah yeah that's awesome yeah i remember you mentioned that before too yeah i just i, I love it and so I, I i just love to go up even when i travel uh around the world i always make it a point to find a place where i can go hike and just kind of take a moment to reflect and uh kind of get that experience so moving on, so you went through this really traumatizing experience, obviously, and you'd had – and I, something I wrote down is that it seems like every time you overcame one challenge, another more devastating challenge would pop up. And yeah. this kind of goes to my next um, 
bullet point that I took away from your talk that you did, and it's finding the silver lining and how you do that in your life, <clears throat> going through these multiple experiences. And you just recently had another surgery. If you want to talk about that, great. If you don't, I understand. But sure. I'm just overcoming multiple um, tough experiences. And even one of these would be devastating to most people. You've had multiple. So how do you find the silver lining in trial after trial? So, um, and I, I don't want to be too cliche. I know that some self-help advice uh, is very surface level. And sometimes like, for example, like positive thinking, right? So positive thinking, it, 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 if, if not done in wisely, it can lead to distortion, like your a cognitive dissonance with what is actually happening. So I, I'm not recommending this. So what I'm recommending is that but positive thinking and finding the silver lining creatively is very important when you're in hell, like mentally, when you're, when you're in utter survival mode and what the objective is just to last to the next day. When you're in that type of mind state, positive thinking is absolutely essential. And they've done studies about this. They've, they've studied uh, PTSD, PTSD victims, uh, veterans that went to war and came back. They studied uh, how uh, the ones that were more prone to positive thinking were able to have their heart rate regulate better in reaction to more traumatizing events than people who are generally more negative and pessimistic whose uh, mental state and mind and emotion were tied to whatever trauma longer. And so I, um, I, I was dealing with a lot of this loss and, and heartbreak. And when I went back to school uh, later in my 20s, um, and started to re-engage with this, uh, re-engage with uh, an intellectual journey. I started to read. Most of my time I spent outside of class, I would study like the effects of brain trauma or, or CTE or PTSD, and and I was like, well, then if I have all of these things, because I didn't have any healthcare, so I had to self-diagnose. <laughs> and uh, part of what I did was I realized how I I, I read so many studies of how. Uh, psychiatrists treat traumatized children <clears throat> and you're you have to learn a lot of uh, coping mechanisms and I didn't have really any real solid coping mechanisms and uh, plus being on my own a lot you know I spent a lot of time alone after the accident you know because tra traveling on by myself and and so what I learned was that was helpful for me so that's why I offer it in my speech as a recommendation uh, as an option for coping and it's uh, finding your silver lining so what I would do is when I would feel the onset of panic, I would start writing a list of things that I was grateful for. And then what I would do is I would write until I was exhausted, meaning <laughs> I'll get like a hundred things. And what that started to awaken within me was this understanding that life is hard, right? Life is chaotic. But so kind of what we need to do, what's help, we just need to last till the next day. We need to keep going. We need to, this resilience and the, we need to be resilient through our struggles because eventually there is a, I feel that there are lessons that we can learn in hindsight that we can pass on to the next generation or someone else who's going through something that might help. And so for me, <clears throat> the biggest thing was how do I survive to the next day? And when I was going through a thick of a lot of my emotional struggles, I felt a certain release of the pain momentarily uh, when I would, when I would focus my mind on things that were positive, a positive angle of looking at things. And I would use that on the most difficult things in my life. And gradually, as I would do this, I was training my mind to find opportunity in chaos. 
And so eventually, and now it becomes habit where I, it, it's, it's an, I, I habitually will think of the positive in a situation, um, you know, which, which has its downsides too sometimes where I can, I can look at things to a fault in a positive light when sometimes it might not be the best situation for me or it's more toxic for me. I won't recognize it until later. But what it did help me do was get, was it fueled my resilience. So as I was writing, what I, for me what happened was I felt that I was utilizing my creative resources, my creative faculty and um, energy and putting it in, in, in a way that um, discovered the positivity or, or not, I won't say discovered, but I was able to analyze a situation in a positive light. So for example, like my car accident, it was something that was the bane of my existence, the curse. I always looked at it as a curse. Something that most people that I met had not gone through. Like one of the things that I have till this day, I have like the worst short-term memory. Um, and a lot of that's from my head trauma. Like that's one thing that, and I realize it's very common for people who have gone through a coma, uh, who have gone through a really, really big uh, head trauma incident where they lo lose consciousness for a sustained period of time. And I was on so much medication when I was in the hospital. Um, so what I've learned from that is the, is the, the, the statement earlier on in this podcast where I talk about pain. It's taught me the value of pain. And this is something that I've, I've forced myself to think. And it's really empowered me because I, for me, I needed to find empowerment in my struggle. All of that stuff that I went through, it helps me connect with people. And I was like, wow, there, here's the seed of positivity or the, the silver lining in my struggle is that I can really relate to people. Like, for example, yesterday, I had a good friend reach out to me. Uh, we connected after a long time, and he told me that his friend had just been shot and murdered. Uh, There's a murder in Atlanta where an Uber driver had shot and killed uh, a gentleman who was picking up Uber Eats food. Um, and there was some conflict, I guess, and this, this driver just thought it was a great idea to shoot this guy. This guy was a really close friend of a, a good friend of mine. And he said that when he was dealing with this, he thought of me and wanted to reach out to me to talk to me. And, why he, and he thought of this because I have lost people. And I've been through the thick of these, these type of really deep emotional struggles when you lose somebody before their time and um, through a very traumatic, tragic incident. So I, I feel that I, and I, I'm assuming he thought of me because he felt that I could relate. And so when you survive through all of this pain, mm -hmm. you become relatable to a wider variety of people. And so usually I, and I realize, wow, here's the blessing is uh, like the blessing within the chaos is that when you don't kind of deal with a lot of that, you know, crap, you're limited by your experiences, which are very also limited by your circumstance. But I've been very fortunate to experience a lot of really crazy, diverse things that make me relatable to a wider variety of people, including these kids that were locked up in June. Yeah. So one of the reasons why I felt that I could reach these kids, and a lot of times I did, was because I feel like I know, when I say I know how you feel, I know how you feel. I know what it's like to feel hopeless. I know what it's like to feel like I don't know if I can make it tomorrow, make it till tomorrow. So when I talked to these kids, I felt that they perked up when I talked to them because I felt that they felt I knew where they were coming from. Mm -hmm. And so I, it's given me this gift of relatability if I speak with someone or some people uh, or a crowd of people uh, of, of shared experience um, and, and empathy. And so the, the, the whole positive thinking is trying to creatively find uh, my angles to allow me to have peace within the chaos, allow me to have this resilience 
and to make it to the next day. So all I need is to make it to the next day so that um, I get a, I get another chance, another opportunity to take another shot at life. And I feel like that's that's kind of one of the methods that I've used besides like uh, martial arts and meditation and, and, and my own self-study and, and my intellectual pursuit has been uh, this method of, of, of finding the silver lining in, in the worst possible situations. No, I think that's I think that's great. And it goes back to your whole piece on empathy, and you know, going through similar circumstances and being able to connect with people who are also struggling and how you can help them out because of what you've gone through. So I think that's no, I think that's great, and it's so important. It's like especially in the moment, it's hard to see that silver lining, but uh, when you do the best you can to be grateful to figure out how it can help you and others, makes it uh, makes it bearable. And, yeah. you know, something else you talk about is, like, music. It's, I mean, like, you like to do your Michael Jackson thing, but um, how music is important in your life as well. So why don't you talk about that a little bit? It brings me a lot of, like, very close joy, especially when I'm in the creative process of making my own music. Like, I'm not good. Like, I'm not proficient by any means, but I enjoy it. Like, so it's the way that – it's another way that I cope. Is another way that I find joy is um, trying to create music. So one thing that I picked up, I was always kind of musical. Like I did trumpet for 14 years, starting in elementary school and leading all the way up until high school. I played the trumpet and I played the, I played the drums when I got to high school. Uh, I liked mimicking Michael Jackson. So I was, um, my favorite artist when I was young was Michael Jackson. I saw his double G performance in Motown 25, changed my life and like the greatest performer, music performer I'd ever seen. And um, I would listen to his tracks all day and, I, and, and, and like I would spend, you know, a lot of my, because of the age gap between my sister was 13 years, a lot of my time that I would enjoy be alone. So I'd, I would hold myself up in my room and listen to hours and hours of the same Michael Jackson song. So I know like all of his songs. Yeah. <laughs> and so this music, it, that's what really got me into music was my fanhood of Michael Jackson. And uh, so now when I like when I was in law school and when I made the decision after, in the middle of my first year to say there are people that are br brilliant lawyers there are people that are perfectly fit for that profession but I am not one of those people I don't have any joy and for me having joy in what I do whether it's work whether it's martial arts or whatever I do is important for me not some people have a discipline level where they can do something they hate and still be really good I don't have that I don't have it and plus, I've exhausted. I've exhausted whatever it is that people can do to like really hate something but still do it. I, I did manual labor for like three years after the mountains, and like I I did all the menial jobs that people would normally avoid. And I was like what twenty two at the time. So twenty two to twenty five, my primary job to earn money was manual labor. And year in and year out, I would go um, like clean clean tables, bus tables do uh, dishwashing, uh, pick up after people, take up, like do trash duties, uh, sleep on the floor of a restaurant. That was a year where I, almost a year, maybe six months, where I slept on the floor of one of the rooms in the restaurant because I, they said that they needed somebody to stay watch <clears throat> security purposes to live at the restaurant. And there was also another lady there. So I lived in this restaurant, sleeping on the floor of a corner, my closet, which was in the one of the rooms was the size was a tiny little closet had all of my belongings my, my change of clothes for the next day and I spent a lot of time alone like waking up like with cockroaches on my face from they would crawl in from the kitchen and they would like crawl into my mouth like I had a lot of like those types of experiences and um, 
the way that I got through a lot of that was dancing. I would dance in this like by myself, and, <laughs> and I would go to I would or I would go to like these clubs in Korea and like battle dance and win the competition. And I, I grew up dancing as a kid. I grew up doing martial arts, so I've always had a knack for rhythm. And then when I went to law school, while I was coping, not, not, I want to say I, I wanted to find a creative outlet. I picked up freestyle rapping. So I'm very very like base level of freestyle rapping where I could just like if you give me a tune where I could do acapella, I could just rap about whatever topic. Off the top of my head, and it's it gives me joy to do that. So even in IBM now, um, we're uh, we're gonna enter a music video for a competition, and I got selected as part of the team to do this music video. Like I rap in it and stuff like that, and it just makes me happy. So that's my relationship with music, is it's helped me weather the storm, and it's helped me find peace within the chaos. I like that a lot. That's really good. Yeah. Do you want do you want to do your little singing thing? Oh heck no, man! <laughs> <laughs> I told you, I'm I'm not I'm not good enough to I I I am humbly aware of my <laughs> my vocal limitations. I just oh, do it on man. stage you... for entertainment. No, oh, it's, it's very entertaining. Every time you get up on stage and do your little dance and uh, you're singing it, it would uh it uh, gets the crowd moving. Um, yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> you know, no, but I really like that. I, and actually, I do want to talk about that too. Is oh man. Not um, I'm drawing a blank on the word. Like not having any. Uh, oh, that's annoying. I can't think of the word. Like uh, not being afraid, but self-conscious. That's the word. Like getting up there and not being self-conscious to get in front of a group of people and do like sing and dance and get them clapping. Especially when it's a somewhat dry uh, week of classes that we're going through. To, so to have something yeah. a little bit more exciting. So for you to get up there, energize the crowd. I think there's, there's power in that for one thing, but it also, uh -huh. just, uh, I mean, it's like you overcoming your doubts or, you know, Oh, maybe if people are going to laugh at me or whatever, but I don't care because I'm going to get up there and do it anyway. And so, you know, I give like a lot of credit because I can never do something like that. And it is, <laughs> like, it's, it's a good thing to do it. Like it brings my, like I still think uh, about it almost a year later. It, like it, it made me smile. It made a bunch of people laugh and clap and cheer. And so it's a, it's a good thing that you did. I appreciate that, bro. That's, that means a lot to me. Thank you so much. And I, I think that that's, that's what makes me most happy is when I'm performing like that and I can entertain any group of people for a moment, that brings me a lot of joy. So I do it. It's, it's not only a motivational speech for the audience, but it's also motivational for me that I get an opportunity to do that as part of – it's not directly related to my role, so I still have to perform in the measures that I'm, I've been given – but it's it's a huge benefit that I could work in a company where they would allow me to do that. So they fly me out to New York, and I get to speak in front of two hundred. And it's you're right, it's frightening, man. It's every time I'm I can't I'm in utter disbelief leading up to the preparation of it. even in hindsight, and I'm in utter disbelief that I can I get to go up there. And this company is massive, right? IBM is a massive company, and I've been selected to speak with almost every single new sales hire. And it's a wide variety of people from engineering backgrounds to sales backgrounds. And they're all here to like part of the sales college. And I get to speak to them. And what I do is I, I bear my soul up there. I talk about some of the most intimate and vulnerable topics of my past and say it to people I've never met before. And then I do this, <laughs> this dance and this song and this rap. And I'm going to do my, the next speech, I'm going to do the rap that I just made for IBM, which I can't say because we're doing a competition. But it, I'll do it for the next thing because they're going to release it as part of this conference. And uh, 
I'm, that's, that's, and this is like going back to the silver lining is I recently, like you said, I recently came out of surgery. So I had surgery uh, end of January to finally fix my broken nose. And it was, uh, I've, I've had so much scar tissue build up from head, it, like it was, was broken in the car accident. I've had breathing problems, a deviated septum, my like entirety of my adulthood. And then now I have access to healthcare where they were able to fix it. And so they've fixed my septum and they've uh, re kind of reconstructed my nose. Now that's not a, that's a very pretty big surgery. Uh -huh. And when you go through, and the doctor said this, that when, when someone who's sustained a very massive facial trauma gets this, this uh, reconstructed surgery, it could reconjure up a lot of those, that pain, that trauma. And she was right. Uh, before the accident, I was like super, like happiest I've ever been. I was healthy. I was doing great. And my, I, I accomplished the goal of, I've been separated in a different continent with my parents for the past like 20 years, right? Ever since I left for Korea, we've been living in, living in different continents. I finally moved them back to America. Once, once I got this job, my first speech was like, I want to get to a point in my life where I feed everybody, right? And so now, thanks to IBM, I'm in a situation where I've moved them from a pretty difficult situation in China, and, I'm, and I were able to let, let them live here for six months. So I, I said, hey, I'll help you out while you guys get back on your feet in America. Like, while you re-immigrate back to America, I'll help you out. You can just live with me. So they lived with me in a one bedroom, in my one-bedroom apartment. We have, I have two mattresses still to this day, two mattresses in one bedroom. And they lived with me, and it was uh, healing. We got to catch up in ways that we hadn't done before because our primary means of communication before that was Skype. And uh, so they, they just moved out last week. They, two weeks ago, they moved out to D.C., and they're now reestablished in D.C. after, I think, 10, 15 years. And... Um, uh, I'm in a situation where I could do that, and but during that period, um, because of the surgery, I'd kind of gotten the my mental state was kind of stuck on, wow, like even after all of this, I still have to piece my body back together, and my momentarily my mind was fixated on the struggle itself. You know, the woe is me, like damn man, who has to go through stuff like this? You know, I. How old am I now? Like mid thirties, and I'm still piecing my life back together from this accident that happened when I was 18. And it, I, it, it's, and I'm just starting my career. I have already so much to do, and I have all this debt from from law school that I have to pay off. And so it was starting to like mount up. And I'm like, and every time I go through these surgeries, the person I think of the most is my sister. And so what happened was I had to do this, the thing that I, um, the, the gratitude list that I talk about in my speech, I had to do that again, and it helped me get out of that. So I was like, well, then what am I grateful for? And I'm like, who, who does get to fix themselves from stuff like that? I should not make it. There's, statistically, I should not be here. I should not be here. But I'm here. And not only am I here, I've, I've attained access to privilege, meaning healthcare and good healthcare, where I can fix my body. So I, I'm, I'm able to, people most times don't get redemption. And I've been able, I've been really blessed in a way to be able to have access to situations where I can pro help provide for my family um, and also kind of gain some normalcy back from an accident that kind of ripped my whole life apart. I'm, a, I'm able to get second, third, a hundred chances again to kind of do that again. And I realized the, the, the huge kind of silver lining that it is for me. And I had to do that again after this surgery. And now I, I feel, 
I feel like me coming back from that, every time I get surgery, this has been like, I think 10 surgeries so far, every time it puts me in a, in a weird mental state, my recovery mentally has become quicker. Where I'm able to say, I'm, I'm, I'm ready to take another shot at this again. And I'm, I'm ha I, I get back to my usual happy self quicker now. <laughs> yeah. You're always happy. You're like one of the most positive people I know. <laughs> well, yeah, that's, but that's the, that's the thing. Like, I know people that are more pessimistic and it works for them. Like, they, like, it, <laughs> like no, no, so like, is that what, is that what you were going to well, say? Like, like you? Uh, no, I have good friends that are pessimistic and you know, sometimes you need to be pessimistic. Sometimes you need to be very critical. Like that's, there are people in, in, for your job or for whatever, like you need to be able to assess things in a light that reveals its inefficiencies. Right. But I just couldn't do it. I, my body was so weak after the accident that whatever negativity I had in my head would have killed me. Like I literally would feel like there were times where if I held in a resentment or I was angry or I was like pessimistic about something because my body was so fragile, I'm assuming because my body, I would feel it like physically. It would, it would like tear my stomach up. My, like I could feel it in the, the middle of my chest. It felt like a huge piece of hot coal like in the middle of my chest. So a lot of the stuff that I talk about with positivity and silver lining was a necessity, survival necessity for me. I wouldn't have made it, man. It was too hard. Like everybody has all these opinions and all the stuff they think, and this is what I think, and they have all this false sense of superiority, and they have this ego. All that falls by the wayside when you're about to die. And so a demographic that I feel like I relate to a lot are old people, like people like 80. They've, they've lost enough people. They're physically pretty much <laughs> done, you know, and so they're kind of like uh, crawling by until, you know, life takes them. Yeah. Those people, um, I feel I relate to them in that. I, I can see that. I understand that perspective. And there's a simplicity to the philosophy of elderly people because they've already kind of been through all the BS. They've already been through and they, they are able to understand, wow, life really ain't much. Like it really is about, um, like your mind is very important. You got to take care of your health. My, my grandma gives me the best advice. She goes, do the things that you really want to do. Like all of her regrets in life, like she tells me about all the things that she didn't really do because of whatever reason, like things that she really wanted to do, people that she really wanted to meet. Those are the things that she regrets. And she also regrets not loving more or not saying, I love you more, not forgiving more. Those are the lessons that I learned. I learned the same lessons that people in old folks homes learn, you know? So that's why I, I've had to choose to be positive more from a, re, a, a necessity, a survival necessity, necessity, because my body couldn't sustain any other type of uh, thinking. In my, this is how I've analyzed and uh, I maybe framed the the kind of my journey is that I've had to do this. So I presented in a way to other people is if you need help, like getting yourself out of a, a, a mental rut, these are things that might help you. And the tense, the breathing, the meditation, the the breathing exercises, the positive thinking, um, the method of positive thinking, and, and, and kind of using my story as maybe a reference point that I'm, man, I'm nothing, man. I, I, I was, uh, you know, I've been through uh, kind of some unique circumstances, and I'm just starting now. I'm just starting my quote-unquote career now. So I kind of help, like, I kind of give that as a reference point for people that might that might become overwhelmed sometimes. Oh, that's yeah. great. I love it. Um, all right. So to wrap this up, we're going to 
I mean, yeah. that's that's really good actually. And I mean, I get I need to work on my positivity. I often get called like the dream crusher and Mister Negative and stuff like that. <laughs> and wait, uh, wait, what? Yeah, they really... call you the dream. What? What? That's the worst thing to be there. That that's what that's what I think too. And I think I'm the exact opposite. I think I'm nothing but rainbows and unicorns and sunshine. But... I do. Well, I thank agree you. With that. Well, I appreciate that. You're probably the only person out of like the seven billion people, but. Um, yeah, so to wrap this up, I just have a couple, I mean, they could be quick questions or, you know, whatever, but, uh, talk a little bit about BJJ, like what benefit that's been to you and, uh, yeah, oh, maybe, gosh. What, maybe what's taught you. you know, whole episode for that. Yeah. No, I'd love to talk about that. Yeah. So, um, BJJ was part of my redemptive journey. So one of the things that I had to give, I felt that I had to give up because of my accident was very. Uh, deeply involved martial arts training at a competitive level, right? So I continued my martial arts journey. I learned, I, I you know, when I was in the mountains, we practiced martial arts, but I couldn't compete because my body, I had too many injuries. And plus my face trauma, I, like I used to box and stuff. I used to spar. I used to love that kind of stuff. And um, I couldn't do it because I, I was afraid that I would get re-break my nose and it just, I was too fragile. So, um, and I, you know, like I've always been a fan of martial arts. I've always been, and the martial arts philosophy, that kind of Bushido mentality is a cornerstone, also another big cornerstone of my personal philosophy. I'm very hugely influenced by it. Mm -hmm. And, but, so, but it was always remote. Like I always did it. I would kind of just train on my own and I like would pick up things here and there. Like I trained Muay Thai for a little bit. I trained boxing for a little bit, uh, Taekwondo. And I would just, just do it on my own. But I always wanted to regain formal training, but I was fearful of getting reinvolved because the, the few times that I did do that, like I picked up Lithway. Lithway is a Burmese kickboxing martial art, and I, I tore my knee again, so I had to sit out. So after like a, like after getting injured a hundred thousand times, each time you build up fear in your head, and I think that that's what happened to me was I was getting fearful of re-injury, and so I I um. I stopped, but then uh, I had a friend who was dating a classmate of mine at the time, and one of the most positive guys I know, Brandon. And he was he, every time I would see him at one of these law school parties, like, dude, you got to do jujitsu, you got to do jujitsu. It's like life changing. He was such a great representative for it, just like a really cool, super sweet guy, but lethal on the ground. And I had this insecurity about my own martial arts training, where I um, I was like, yeah, I, I have my hands are pretty decent. I'm pretty quick. I can hit. I, I can punch relatively really pretty hard for my for my size i always win those punching games at bars where you pull them down <laughs> i can be like borderline blackout drunk and i can still hit it really hard and always get that high score but if you take me to the ground i'm screwed and so <laughs> um i uh i was fortunate that um uh so i he this guy met and he he kind of introduced me to his team so roberto Traven. uh is an amazing coach. He became uh, not just a jiu-jitsu teacher, but a kind of a life mentor to me, and he's helped change my life. I realized that, oh, there's no striking in jiu-jitsu. So it allowed me access to spar again. And sparring is therapeutic because uh, it mimics all the great life lessons that you can get in a very uh, in, in, a, in a very intense way, meaning um, – you have to check your ego out the door with jiu-jitsu, right? I mean, you're going to get destroyed by a girl, when, especially when you're a white belt. If, if somebody is really advanced, doesn't matter what size they are, you're going to get destroyed, and it feels like drowning. But that's life. Life is tough. 
and you check your you at the door, you focus on your personal growth, you focus on your own, uh, uh, you, you focus on the details that you need to focus on that are directly within your control that are usually just self-growth things, and then you take one step at a time, and you overcome your personal limitations, you overcome your negative self-thought, your, your self-limiting -limit, belief systems, and you keep evolving, and martial arts really is a great teacher for that. And you have to directly face your insecurities and vulnerabilities in sparring. There's no, because your survival is on the line. Technically, and uh, Joe Rogan uh, says this really well, that technically, like, your life is on the line because if that person didn't stop after you tap, they could kill you. Like, if they're choking you and they kept choking you, you'd die. <laughs> so it's the closest that you can go to survival training uh, while mitigating the risk, yeah. right? Because the other extreme would be actually to be in a, a physical combat um, with someone with your life on the line and actually dying. So the, this is like a, a, a tr within a trained, uh, regulated, uh, friendly environment, you get to practice those survival skills. So uh, I've always liked that. And even as a kid, you know, you're growing around and getting jumped and beat up all the time. So you learn how to, you got to learn how to handle yourself, quote unquote, in the streets, because you're, you're going to get whooped on and they, they can smell fear. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, but then, so I, Jiu-Jitsu was hugely transformative for me facing my own fears about my own self-limitations. So I trained, so it's been what, three, I've been over three years, I'm approaching four years of Jiu-Jitsu. I'm currently a blue belt under uh, Professor Master Roberto, Roberto Travin. And I'm, I, you know, I'm, I train, it's not about beating anybody else. It's not about being better than anybody else. I just want to be better than I was the previous quarter. And it's really helped me be able to focus more on my own individual journey of martial arts rather than make it a competitive thing about other people. And that's, it's been very healthy for me to be, um, to put myself out there. Like I competed, every time I competed, I had like some flu, but I still went out there and competed. Um, last, the last year, 2017, I went to almost every single practice and I had injuries all year. I like, first I had a neck injury and then I had a shoulder injury, then I had an arm injury. And then ultimately I had, injured both of my knees. So I re-injured my knees. But before, when I first started, when I was a white belt, I used the excuse of an injury to just not train for like months. So I wanted to overcome this bad habit that I had. So I utilized jujitsu. I said, by any means necessary, I'm going to crawl out of my house, even if I'm hurt. And if I can't directly compete or, or roll the sparring part, I'm just going to watch the technique. And I did. I would. There was a time where I couldn't actually do the active rolling. So I just sat on the sidelines and watched the class. And I, I, I did a whole year of that. And now I had to get my, you know, my nose fixed. So um, I'm, I'm out of training for about a couple of months. But that's a huge source of like pride for me, that I was able to overcome my own self limitations, and my excuses to just go and, and train. And I, I, I use jujitsu as a fuel for my own evolution, mentally and physically. And so I can't wait to go back. Um, yeah, it's one, one of the, along with like singing, dancing, creating music, uh, and performing, I, I, I love martial arts. So it's been, it's been one of the greatest blessings of my life. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Yeah, I totally agree. It's something I definitely wish I had gotten into a lot earlier. I had a couple of friends, one specifically who kept on badgering me. He dragged me out every couple of months. And, uh, you know, that was like, 2010 and i'd only wish that i'd been consistent since 2010 but uh yeah every time i get out there on the mats it's it's a great experience and 
Love it. And don't plan on quitting anytime soon. Um, awesome, awesome. Yeah, yeah dude, when you come to Atlanta, we should roll, man. Yeah, for sure, dude. Yeah, dude. I, I'm, glad like that, I, I'm glad I ran into you, too, when I first got there and you uh, introduced me to your uh, to your team because that was – I looked at a couple ones that weren't so good, and uh, when you got me into your class, it was it was great. So, um, yeah, let's uh, let's finish up with a couple of random random questions. And okay. Let's see. Okay, so first question I like to ask is, what's a favorite book, movie, TV show, album, just a random – uh, any piece of media, just pick one and why is it your favorite? Oh, any piece of media and why is my favorite? Yeah, so like it can um, be a song, it can be an album, uh, book. Wow. Um, I've always loved movies. Um, before my car accident, my dream actually was to be the next big uh, martial arts movie star. Yeah. And so my goal was to, I was like, I wasn't applying for college, it was just to move to Hollywood do whatever actor, like the hordes of actors that go there, uh, pick up like <laughs> waiting tables and try to like try out for film. And that was my, my dream. And obviously I, I, for, I, I let, I uh, give, gave up on that dream after the car accident. And, uh, but yeah, so I, I always used to, I, I grew up loving movies. Um, Bruce Lee was a huge hero of mine. Uh, he was, uh, and he was one of the ways that I connected with, growing up around children of a different demographic ethnicity than I, because we all loved Bruce Lee. That was like the universal thing was everybody loved Bruce Lee. Yeah. Uh, so like, yeah. So I would say movies for sure. Yeah. No, that's great. Yeah. Bruce Lee movies are great. They're, they're always entertaining. Um, yeah. Let's see. What's a gift you've given or received recently that meant a lot? Gift. Um, and it does, does it have to be money or like an actual thing. It can be like a, an act of service can be something really small. Uh, yeah, just something, anything that's uh, a gift. Uh, my mom, so when my parents moved in, it was perfect timing because I scheduled the surgery, you know, for the beginning of this year. And so my, my parents were still living with me when I got the surgery. And so what, what, what could have been a, a more difficult physical recovery was helped a lot by my mom. My mom used to be a nurse. Mm-hmm. So every morning she would wake up and like prepare these juices for me and she took great care of me and I, I'm, it was a huge gift. I, I look at it as uh, my, my, my dad was here and we just bonded a lot and they were just so uh, supportive. And so I'm, I'm so fortunate and I, I, I cannot, couldn't have asked for better parents. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. I like it. Um, okay. So this is the trial question. I, I saved it for the end and so we'll see how it works. When's the last time that you cried tears of joy? Oh, wow. I know, it's pretty deep. I was trying to think of this, too. I was like, I don't know if I've... I can't even know if... I don't even know I if I can I cried a lot, man. I'm such a sad. Um, I cried a lot on movies. So any type of... I think the last time I cried was... Like, any movie that you would watch where there's, like, a dramatic scene and, the, like, a good part where, like, they embrace or there's a redemptive part of the movie. I'm a hundred percent time, a hundred percent of the time I cry. Mm-hmm. Uh, so recently I saw the, uh, ironically the gift, I think, was it the gift? The one with the, 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 during segregation, the African-American housekeepers, it was based off of a book and, uh, how they get together and write like short stories about their experiences. Is it called the gift? I, I don't know. It might be, I, I don't know that movie right offhand. Yeah. Jessica Chastain's in it. Okay. And I was watching that movie, and I cried at the end when you know everybody's getting the recognition they deserved. Uh-huh. These uh, African American household workers, 
Um, so that was very touching for me, and I cried during that movie. Cool. No, I'll, have to, I'll have to take that movie out and give it a look-see. I don't see watch enough movies these days. Um, great. Well, this was really long, but there's a lot of good stuff. I really appreciate it. You went really deep and shared some really personal stories, and I definitely appreciate it. So thanks so much, dude. Sorry for being so long-winded. That's uh, something that I need to work on. Uh, that's all right, dude. I'm sure that uh, people will appreciate it, and that's what the magic of editing is. If uh, I feel like I just need it anyway, I can I can go cut, cut, awesome. cut, snip, 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 and uh, and uh, let it go. So no problem, no yes. worries. Thank uh, you so much. Appreciate it, man. All right, thank you. All right, before I go, I just want to say thank you all for listening. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. If you want to chat, feel free to shoot me a message on Twitter or Instagram at Timmy A. Holly. And once again, I am Tim Holly. And until next time, have a great week.